They're supposed to be supporting you and helping you, and to have them ask you, like, do you want to leave, it was devastating. So you did finish your PhD? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk to a PhD living her dream as a science communicator. She shares some tips and potential pitfalls. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 92. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, we're back in the old studio again. In sunny North Carolina, where it is exceedingly hot. We had a great time in Nashville. Oh, man. Our last show, live from Vanderbilt, that was awesome. That exceeded all my expectations. Yeah, I had no idea what to expect, so it was definitely very exciting. The students were so welcoming. We met uh, staff and faculty, and everybody was extraordinarily kind. It was wonderful. Yeah, no, the hospitality was so fantastic, and... The hot chicken was too. The hot chicken was good. Late night run to where was it? Hattie B's. Hattie B's for some hot chicken at like 10 p.m. Should we should we share the secret of getting hot chicken in Nashville? You order it on the app. Yeah, order. Don't go to the location. There's a line out the door and around the corner. Order it on the app. When it's ready, they text you. Walk in the back door, pick it up off the counter, walk Boom. out. Done. It's a way to do it. We learned that from, from our hosts. Yeah, Dan, along those lines, just a special thanks to Meredith and the Vanderbilt Bioengineering Grad Student Association for the invitation. So great. We had such a great time. Enjoyed meeting everyone. So thank you so much. Thanks again. And we're continuing to benefit, Josh. What kind of ethanol do we have today? I want to say a special thanks to Kate and Kim from the Office of Career Development at Vanderbilt who surprised us with a gift of beer during our visit. Yeah, it was totally unexpected, but they had a, a pack of IPA for us because they had listened to the show and knew that we were big fans. So tell, tell us about it, Josh. All right, Dan. So we are drinking the Tennessee Brew Works 1927 IPA, and this was procured on our trip, and we have been saving it for this very moment. Okay, Josh, I have found a description of the 1927 IPA, uh, and it starts with a, a very funny line, juicy, citrusy, dank. Need we say more? I think uh, that describes you, Dan. That, is that right? Dank? Is that what your <laughs> ways of describing me, Josh? I dank Dan. That. Yep. <laughs> uh, there are seven different hops in this one. So I guess all the hops, right? It's, it's every flavor that you can possibly imagine. What do you think of it, Josh? I mean, I don't know what the IBU official count is, but this is really a hoppy beer. This is an unfiltered beer. Is it? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. If not, then uh, we Regardless, it is very, very cold, very, very tasty. I do get a little bit of citrus, um, but I think with all those hop varieties, there is a wash of flavor going on right now. It's, it's a lot of different components. It's not, it's not one, single, one single hop flavor like you would be accustomed to in maybe a citra hopped beer or a, a cascade hopped beer. Yeah, no, it's really good. I agree, Dan. There's a lot of complexity in the hop character. Um, I like it. Cheers. And yeah. thanks again to Kate and Kim. One last thing, Dan. We have a new Patreon patron. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Dana, who has joined our growing list of Patreon patrons. Very exciting. Thank you, Dana. All right, Dan, on to Science in the News.
All right, Josh, this week's Science in the News is a true crime story. So way back in 1976, the city of Sacramento, California, was rocked by this string of home invasions and aggravated rapes. And the perpetrator was dubbed the East Area Rapist. And over the next few years, he grew bolder and managed to avoid capture. He actually committed several murders. And they had a profile for this man. He was a white male with blonde hair. He was just under six feet tall. And the fact that he was able to avoid capture for this amount of time and some other aspects of the case led them to believe that maybe he had a military or some kind of law enforcement background. But he managed to uh, avoid capture basically for the next 10 years at least, where in 1986, he had committed over 30 rapes and several murders in the Sacramento area. And then in 1986, all of these things stopped. So this community was terrorized for 10 years. Yeah, that is awful. Totally awful. Um, But you can remember back in the 1970s and 80s, we didn't have any kind of DNA technology, right? So this this cold case uh, went on until about 2001 when DNA fingerprinting technology became more standard and crime labs were able to uh, generate these profiles. And what they found out when they ran the, the DNA from these crimes and other crimes in the area was that the East Area Rapist was actually tied to other rapes and murders in Northern and Southern California. So instead of just being confined to the East Area around Sacramento, this criminal was redubbed the Golden State Killer because he was tied to at least 50 rapes and 12 murders across the state. Still a, a horrifying thing, but, but no DNA on file matched this perpetrator's DNA. And so the case continued to remain unsolved even after 2001. So this Golden State Killer... I've seen, I've seen that on the news recently. You sure have. That's because in 2016, an investigator uh, with the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office named Paul Holes uh, had been working this case basically for 24, 25 years, and he was about to retire. And he had one final idea for how they could maybe match up this killer. What he did is he took, some, took the DNA profile that was recovered from uh, a 1980 double murder in Ventura Ca- County and he uploaded it to an open source genealogy website called GED Match. GED Match is uh, basically, according to the website, they provide DNA and genealogical analysis tools for amateur and professional researchers and genealogists. So this is a way for you to upload your DNA profile and to say, oh, I'm one quarter of this nationality and I might be related to these people. So this is sort of like the Ancestry.com. Totally. Actually, my, my wife and I, for, for Christmas, one of the gifts that, that we received was an Ancestry.com membership, including the, the genealogy portion. And so we provided a small saliva sample. And they you do sent a cheek us, swab or you spit into it? Uh, you just sort of spit into a tube. And then six weeks later, they send you a, a profile of your, your genealogy, your heritage, what countries your ancestors likely came from based on your DNA. And so they must have a big database of other people who have done this and tie the, the genetic markers to those I places. I think so, and they even send you sort of percentages based on your matches to other people from known places. Do you want to tell us where you're from, Josh? No, uh, you better not. I think I remember now. I, was, uh, I think I was a, a large part British, yep, which explains my awesome sense of humor. <laughs> and your accent. <laughs> but but the point is, yes, so it's like genealogy.com or 23andMe. It doesn't do any of the you know, maybe disease prediction or profiling like 23andMe would do, but it's an online database where people can upload their genetic information and then build genealogies. And so what this officer did was to upload this genetic profile from the unknown killer and to see if there were any matches in that database, any distant relatives 
of this particular person based on his DNA profile. Thankfully, in, in this particular instance, in, in one county where uh, these rapes and murders were committed, they had not destroyed that evidence. So typically after a period of time, they would destroy the evidence because you can't just keep evidence on crimes from 40 years ago. Um, but somebody had marked on this particular set of samples, do not destroy. And so they were still available for analysis. So this detective then had a few matches that he found in the database. These were distant relatives of the murderer. And so what does he do next? He puts together family trees of these people, uncles and nephews and aunts and children. And, and what he was able to determine was uh, based on those family trees that he constructed, he narrowed it down to just two men who fit the profile and the description of the killer based on the height and the where they were at the time of the murders. And uh, basically, it was just down to these two men, which is really incredible. That is, that is incredible. And obviously, they were able to narrow it down. They eliminated one of those two men and narrowed it down to this other guy. But they didn't have any proof that he did it. He was living in a suburb of Sacramento. He was His name is Joseph James D'Angelo. He's 72 years old now. And he was the right height and build. He was a former police officer. So that kind of fits some of the profiles. Um, and again, he lived around Sacramento. So they put him under constant surveillance. They didn't want to go up and knock on the door and say, did you commit all these rapes and murders? Excuse me, sir. Did you commit 30 right. rapes and murders? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, and okay. where are my bags, uh, okay. right? Yeah. yeah. So they put him under surveillance. And uh, it turns out that it is legal to collect your DNA if you discard your DNA in a public place. So... Is that like a federal law or just a state? I have no idea. I, yeah. I'm not sure about uh, where the jurisdiction is, but if you spit out a piece of gum or uh, smoke a cigarette or blow your nose on a piece of tissue and throw it away in a public place, somebody can pick that up. And so they watched him around the clock and were able to collect this particular man's DNA. And it turned out he was, he was the guy. His DNA matched. They took him into custody on April 24th uh, without a struggle. And they initially are charging him with the two murders that they matched his DNA to, but they are preparing other charges for these other crimes that he likely committed over the past uh, 30, 40 years. Wow, that's really amazing. You know, Dan, I've seen, I mean, I've, I've been traveling really a whole lot over the last month. And so I haven't followed the news cycle quite as closely, but you know, this I've seen this Golden State Killer thing popping up in headlines and I haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to because there are so many things to pay attention to these days. Uh, but I had no idea wh what all was involved in this story and why it was why it was so extraordinary. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe this was obvious to other people. This did not occur to me, but I think it's really powerful. We've had DNA evidence for feels like a long time, but that DNA evidence required that we had the suspect's DNA on file or uh, that we had maybe their family members DNA on file and so that we could tie them very closely. But um, what's happening now is we're collecting genetic evidence in these online databases. So I wondered myself how many other crimes now are, are likely to be solved. How are these online databases of genealogy going to be utilized to maybe solve cold cases from many years ago? What this may, reminds me of a little bit is something that's related, but from a different angle on this. And that is, Dan, are you familiar with the Innocence Project? I've heard of it. Yep. Yeah, so the Innocence Project, um, the, the idea of that actually is to use DNA evidence to potentially exonerate people who are incorrectly charged with crimes. Perhaps they were convicted before the advent of, of DNA. So um, these people may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, but then put in prison for the last 30 years. 
And now DNA technology, uh, fingerprinting, is enabling them to prove that the DNA that was part of the crime was not theirs. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true, Dan. And when I saw that this is what you were going to talk about on Science in the News, uh, I went and looked at some information about Innocence Project. This is actually their 25th anniversary, and the Innocence Project has led to the freeing of more than 350 wrongfully convicted people based on on DNA. And actually, at least 20 of those uh, spent time on death row. And, and in a lot of cases, Dan, it not only led to the freeing of people wrongly convicted, but then subsequently led to the arrest of the actual perpetrators. By using that evidence now mm-hmm. to, to prove that it was somebody else. So that, that's really incredible. And an application of science in social justice, which is, uh, I think, a, one of the better uses of science that we can have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, you know, there are privacy issues around this. I know people are going to be worried about the fact that your information is, is on file or accessible, even though you didn't file it. And I think there should be protections about it. There's probably a case where you know there should be a warrant in place or some kind of review before you start screening these databases for people. But you know, my hope is that this would prevent some kind of crimes where if you know that committing this crime is going to get you caught, um, maybe you'll think twice about it. I, I have no idea if that's the case, but you know, what would this person have done 30 years ago if? he had realized that he was leaving DNA everywhere. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. And you've probably seen these stats, Dan. Violent crime has been on the decline really, really over time in general. And there can be a lot of pontificating about why that is. But I, I guess one thing that had not occurred to me is one potential reason for that could be there's a huge decrease in the amount of anonymity that is available to us living in the United States today than certainly there was in the 70s. And and certainly part of that is what you were talking about, you know, now with DNA technology. Being, we're leaving digital trails all yeah, over the place. I mean, yep. I mean, you know, Dan, anytime anything happens, no matter how remote the location or how random, someone has caught footage of it on a cell phone camera. I mean, we, we all carry um, high quality video cameras in our pockets every day. Uh, and this has had some really important consequences for combating some social justice issues um, throughout our country. The fact that it's hard to do things and not be seen right. anymore. Can't, they can't be done quietly or in the dark. Yeah. So I think you and I will probably maintain our hopefulness, our, our rose-colored glasses, <laughs> that this will all work out all right. I'm encouraged to think that these people who were victimized 30 years ago, who lived their lives with, with post-traumatic stress disorder who wondered about locking their doors every night, uh, that hopefully they get some, some justice and some peace out of this. Yeah, Dan, thanks for sharing that story with us. All right, Dan, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of sitting down with Monica Philiu Moher, and she is wears many hats, but two of them are Vice Director of Ciencia Puerto Rico and Program Manager at iBiology. And she explains a little bit about what those things are, but um, both of them have to do with science communication to the public in the case of Ciencia Puerto Rico, um, specifically on the island of Puerto Rico, and also with iBiology, um, sharing information about science with the public and with other scientists. And this was fascinating to me, not necessarily just about the things that she's doing in her career, but about her journey as a graduate student at Harvard who was working in a neuroscience PhD program, but really more and more was 
was realizing this passion she had for science writing and communication and how she navigated getting through her PhD training, knowing that the thing she really wanted to do was science communication. Yeah, that's fascinating. She is a traditionally trained PhD at a very good school, Harvard University, and now she has two jobs. So I think there's probably a story in there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, so I think what would be best is let's give a listen to the interview and then afterwards we'll, we'll talk about some of the things that that I thought were really cool. Sounds good. My name is Monica Felio Moher. I am the Director of Communications and Science Outreach for Ciencia Puerto Rico and the Associate Director for Diversity and Communication Training for iBiology. Well, I think what I'd like to start with, so you went to grad school, Mm -hmm. and obviously the work you're doing now is really science communication focused. Mm -hmm. And from your talk earlier today, it's clear that you've had a passion or interest in science communication for a while, even while you were in grad school. So tell me a little bit about graduate school for you at Harvard. What was graduate school like for you, and how did your interest in science communication sort of become nurtured during that time? Um, So I actually became interested in science communication before graduate school. Um, So I started volunteering with with Ciencia Puerto Rico, which is one of the organizations that I um, I actually work with as a staff um, today. So I got involved with with that organization in 2006, and I didn't start grad school un- until 2007. So I had an interest in, in science communication even before I, I started graduate school, but I, I kind of stumbled upon science communication. Um, I liked writing, and, and then I got the opportunity to, to volunteer with the organization, you know, I had a desire to stay connected with the Puerto Rican scientific community to to somehow find ways to give back um, to to my community to Puerto Rico, and so Ciencia Puerto Rico uh, at the time had a collaboration with El Nuevo Día, which is Puerto Rico's uh, main newspaper, and so that was a chance. I saw that as that opportunity I had been looking for to to give back and, and stay connected to that community. But it was also a, an opportunity to combine things that I, I really enjoy doing. Since high school, I had enjoyed I really enjoyed writing, um, writing essays in particular, and. You know, I didn't know that science communication, I, I didn't know science writing was a thing. Um, so, you know, I got this chance to, to lead this collaboration to help scientists get published in the newspaper. And so that was my entry point into, into science communication. And, and again, I started doing that in 2006. So once I, I started graduate school, it was just something that I continued doing. I, I've... I, you know, talking about I I wear multiple hats. I've always done that um, because I've always, as I was a graduate student, I always wore my Ciencia Puerto Rico hat as well. You know, as I was progressing through graduate school, it became clearer and clearer that that academia was not what I wanted to do. I did not want to become a PI. I didn't see myself um, doing that. But, you know, when you, th- you think about the, the thing that keeps you up at night, like that's the thing that you're really passionate about, it, it was the, the Ciencia Puerto Rico work. That's what was keeping me up at night. That's what I would stay up until 2 in the morning because I was a volunteer and I had lab work and I would do that after. 
as I progressed and I realized this is where my passion is, this is what I want to do, I started becoming more intentional with you know, the projects that I was undertaking uh, with Ciencia Puerto Rico, kind of not just doing science writing, but also putting together conferences or, or doing things at the K-12 level. So I started kind of diversifying. And, and really, as the organization grew, I started growing as a leader with it. If, in, in some ways, it, it was very organic. Um, you know, in some ways, it wasn't like I sat down and said, all right, here are my goals for the next three years, and here's how I'm going to approach it. Um, in some ways, it was very organic, but I did know that I wanted to pursue science communication as a career. So, you know, I started kind of doing more different things mm-hmm. um, and also taking any trainings or workshops that were available to me at, at Harvard, which there weren't a lot. There were some. Um, so I started taking those opportunities and also networking, seeking mentors, um, people that were doing science communication and, you know, kind of learning about what is it that people are doing, particularly at this intersection of, um, you know, serving uh, underrepresented communities with science communication. That was something that because of, of my life experiences and my interest, I was very drawn to. So I started finding people who were in that space um, so that I can figure out how I would do what I do now. So, so what was it like being a PhD student at Harvard? And you're a neuroscientist. Yeah. So, you know, you're trying to do your grad student thing, do your research in the lab, but also explore this interest in science communication. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me a little bit about what that was like. Um, you mean like the day-to-day of what how was it was, it was it hard to split your focus, I guess, between expectations and just the necessity of all the hard work involved just in having a research project, yeah. um, but also trying to explore these, these career interests yeah. and build these skills that are maybe important that you get outside the lab. Mm-hmm. How, was, how was balancing those things when you were a grad student? It was hard. It was hard balancing, you know, doing science communication and my volunteer work with, with my graduate work. It was, I, at times I did a really poor job of staying focused on, on you know, my main goal, which was getting a PhD. I took advantage of the flexibility of being a graduate student. Um, you know, one thing that my PhD advisor taught me early on was that it, it wasn't about how long I spent in the lab, but how efficient I was. And so, you know, I took advantage of, of the flexibility of I didn't have to be in the lab at eight in the morning and leave at five. Um, I could do things here and there in between experiments. Um, as long as I was getting my things done, um, I really took advantage of, of that flexibility to explore and, and get involved in, in a variety of projects. But keeping the focus was hard, particularly once I was convinced that academia was not what I wanted to do. You know, there's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. 
to stay in academia, you're in this path, particularly if, if you're a minority. It's like, well, there's not that many of us at, at the top, at, at the academic research level. So there's a lot of pressure of, well, you have to go and do that. And, and that like weighs. you here. Right, right. And, and, you know, that weighs on you. Um, it, it certainly weighed on me that, you know, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. That was the expectation of what I should do. But that's not what I wanted to do. And so it took me a little bit to kind of accept that's not what I wanted to do. That was not what, what was going to make me happy. And, and it was hard at times to, to balance that because what, while I really enjoyed the process of research, of doing the experiment, of like being, I did a lot of microscopy. I loved being in the microscope room and looking at beautiful images. I really love that experimental side of what I was doing. But, you know, there were other things that I didn't love as much. You know, while I was enjoying that experimental part, at least some parts of, of the research, what really brought me immense joy was all of this communication and outreach that I was doing. And so, you know, graduate school is is hard and there are ups and, and downs. And, you know, there was a point in, in graduate school where things were not looking great. Like I wasn't happy. I didn't feel like I was making progress. I didn't feel like I had the support I needed to to succeed in the lab. And so I wasn't motivated and I decided to pour all of my energy into my outreach and my science communication. And that really affected my productivity to the level that I, you know, I was a fourth year grad student and my dissertation advisory committee, you know, we had these meetings every year to kind of talk about progress. And eventually they're like, yes, you can graduate. And in my fourth year, they asked me if I wanted to quit the PhD program. Um, You know, they told me you're not happy. You're, you know, things are not progressing as they should. You're having a hard time focusing on the research. You, we know that you don't want to be in academia anyway. Do you want to quit? You know, do you need a PhD for the things that you want to do? And, you know, that was incredibly devastating to have these, you know, four people that you respect um, and that their main role is supposed to be supporting you and helping you. And to have them ask you, like, you know, do you want to leave? It was devastating. But I somehow found the strength to say, like, I know I don't want to quit. I'm not quitting. You know, like I, I know that I, I know I knew that I needed to make adjustments and I knew that I needed to focus. So I said, no, I'm not quitting. And I actually, yes, I do need a Ph.D. to do what I want to do. So I am committing right here, right now to do what I need to do to to finish. And I hope that you as my committee will work with me to help me accomplish that. But every day for the next several months after that meeting, I asked myself every single day, do I want to quit? And I looked into options. I looked at MBA programs for like biomedical scientists. I looked at policy jobs. I looked at fellowships. I looked at my options because I thought, well, like, do I really need to finish? I'm not happy. It's true. I am not. But, you know, I've been really fortunate to have incredible mentors 
And, you know, some of them really, they shook, you know, they shook me up and said, yes, you need to finish and you need to focus. And here's, you know, we're going to help you do that. And so I had the support that I needed to refocus. Nowadays, I work with a lot of young scientists, mostly PhD students, and I tell them, you know, your priority is your training. And and yes, you need to have a life, and yes, you need to develop your non-research skills, and you need to explore other careers, but don't, you know, you when you came to grad school, you committed to train and do research so that you can become an independent scientist. And that is going to serve you in a number of ways in many different places and careers. But that's your focus. So don't make the mistake I made. And, you know, try to, I know it's hard, sometimes it is very hard to stay focused on that goal. But, you know, you have to be proactive on, on, on staying focused on that goal. Yeah, I, I thought that was really sort of powerful advice that you gave in your talk today. And I think that's a piece, I think that's a piece that sometimes we overlook. Those of us who are talking to students a lot about building their professional development, their career development, is, is just that, realizing that all that is absolutely important and necessary, depending on what people want to do as part of your training. Mm-hmm. But you can't overlook the fact that at the end of the day, you do have to prioritize your right. your research project to get that PhD, and that's important because right. you know it's that it's that experience and that degree that you then can leverage to have a bigger impact once you're done. Exactly, and and that was really, I think that was the key conversation that I had with with one of of my mentors. Um, you know, I was still struggling after this meeting, and I. Remember, so I did my research in, in C. elegans, and when you do C. elegans work, you know, you inject your worms with your plasmid so that you can make transgenic lines. So we had, that was one of the few private rooms we had in the lab, and I remember I locked myself up in that room, and I was crying my eyes out on the phone with him, and I was like, you know what, I... I, I, they may be right. Maybe I, I need to leave, you know? And he told me, what do you want to do after you're done? And I said, you know, I really want to continue doing science communication and outreach. And, you know, one of the things that's always been a driving force for me, it's, it's been serving Puerto Rico through science. And I told him, this is what I want to do. And he said, if you want to do that, go get that PhD go finish, and then you can do whatever you want. Like, that's going to be the key to what you want to do. And if you really want to have a big impact, you need to finish. And that conversation was like the slap in the face that I needed to to really focus and say, all right, like, forget everything else. And, you know, I never stopped engaging in science communication activities, but I really took a step back because I was like, you know, this is crunch time. Yeah, I have, you know, a couple of years to finish this, so I'm going to go get it. Um, and, and, you know, but having that, again, that support and that, that mentorship was really critical. I don't think I could have done it without it. So tell me, how did you, so you did finish your PhD. Yes. <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then how did you, how did you leverage that degree that you had into now you have this amazing career where you're doing all this great I mean, it's your dream job, right? Yeah. You're doing yes. all this great science communication that you wanted to do, 
full time. Mm-hmm. So how did you go there? How did you get there? Um, this is a question that I get a lot, and there were two things that were critical for me to get. I make that transition from the bench to what I do now. One was my volunteering. You know, I do use my training as a scientist every day in what I do now in, in a variety of ways. But the all of the volunteer experiences that I had, like they that's where I gained the skills and where, you know, I that's where I built my resume that I could show he I can do these things. It was through that volunteering experience. And the second was it's networking. When I so when I finished my PhD, I decided you know I'm not even gonna try anything else. This is what I want to do, and I think I have enough experience to make that transition um, without having to you know go for a postdoc while I continue to build my resume or whatever. So I decided to go for it, and so I. After my PhD, I moved to Seattle um, because of my husband had a job opportunity there. And, you know, it was a good point for us to transition and move and whatever. When I moved to Seattle, I didn't know anyone. I, I knew one person. Actually, the postdoc who mentored me in my PhD lab, he has a faculty. He's a faculty at um, the Fred Hutch Center. And he's the only, he and his wife were the only two people I knew in Seattle. And, and I knew that I wanted to do outreach. I knew that I wanted to do um, communication. So I reached out to my network and said, I want to go to Seattle. Here are my goals. This is what I want to do. Who do you know? And, you know, people in my network came through and said, oh, I know these people. I'll connect you. You can have coffee with them. Um, that led to volunteering experience. So I took a three-month break. It was the first summer off in nine years. Um, so I took that summer off, but I was volunteering, getting to know what was happening in the community, you know, who was doing what, so that I, I could become visible in, in Seattle and people knew what I was doing. And eventually I found a job at the University of Washington, the Department of Biostatistics. Now, I, I am not a biostatistician. I didn't really do a lot of statistics. <laughs> other than what was required <laughs> to do my VHD. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, this was very different uh, in terms of the expertise. And it was the first uh, outreach position that they had in, in their department. Um, and so it was an opportunity and they had an idea of what they wanted this the person in that position to do in terms of outreach. It was a lot of academic outreach. Uh, a lot of event planning and all that stuff. But I also came in with my own ideas of, well, I don't, I, I'm not sure I understand what biostatistics is. So with my experience and my skills, I can help you with the public facing side of the outreach, not just the academic outreach, but the public outreach. And so, you know, that was a great stepping stone for me to first of all, it's like I could get a job after my PhD doing outreach. Outreach was in my title, <laughs> so you know that was it was great. It was it was a really great experience. I learned a lot about program management and you know how university administration works, and so that was a great 
opportunity for me to transition into what I'm doing right now with both Ciencia Puerto Rico and, and iBiology. And again, the position that I'm in right now, it's I split my time between these two organizations and, and it came about because of my network. Mentors, one, one of my mentors from Ciencia Puerto Rico, he knew, um, so Daniel Colon Ramos, who's the founder of Ciencia Puerto Rico, um, he knew Ron Vale, who's the founder of iBiology, and, you know, it kind of came together um, that, you know, what if we both can hire Monica for half her time and do things together? And so, again, if I didn't know those two people and they weren't willing, especially Daniel, if he wasn't willing to stick his neck out for me, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, and so, again, it was being able to to tap into that network and really build upon the volunteering that I did. Like, that's how I got to where I am. No, that's really great. You know, that's something we talk a lot about on the show is how oftentimes currency of academia are papers and grants. Yeah. But if you're interested in careers outside of academia, oftentimes it's those other things you're doing outside the lab that are the things that really boost your resume when you're looking for these jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't publish from my PhD. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I did publish as an undergrad and... When I was a, from when I was a technician, but I didn't, I never published from from my PhD, and you know that's never limited what in in the transition that I made after um, I finished uh, my doctorate. You know, it's never been a limiting factor. Which, if you, yeah, if you're in academia or even in industry, that may be something that is is limiting. How many sort of science communication type articles and pieces did you write? During the time you were a graduate student? Oh, uh, like 40? Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you say you didn't publish in graduate well, school, right? It, it wasn't peer <laughs> not review. Not the traditional Yeah, sense. not the peer review, yes. But I, the publications I, that mattered for right, your job. Exactly, right? exactly. I mean, yeah. and like, it's funny because when I look at now, when I, you know, I update my resume and my CV every so often to make sure I'm not forgetting anything that needs to be there. And, and so, like, you know, now the, my peer-reviewed publication, publications are at the very bottom of, like, mm-hmm. my resume. I mean, and, and I do, I have have published peer-reviewed articles in what I'm doing now in, like, science communication and education. So, you know, it's for me, it's important for me to contribute to scholarship, but I didn't need to publish papers about mm-hmm. my Ph.D. research to make the transition that I made. Yeah. So... So, so the last thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, most of the people who will be listening to this are graduate students and postdocs. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you have for someone listening who maybe they're in graduate school right now and they, they really are interested in science communication, maybe thinking about pursuing that as a career, mm-hmm. but don't really know what the best things are to do right now and the best ways to um, kind of build those skills um, or learn about that as a career path during their training? What advice would you give? Um, a couple of things. Um, the first thing I would, I would say is try to find what's going on at your institution. Many institutions, research institutions, they often have student groups, student interest groups, or just kind of self-organizing groups that are interested in these topics and are doing anything from, you know, going to schools to writing blogs. So try to find out what the opportunities are 
are where you are, you know, what's available kind of at your fingertips. Um, and, you know, I'm, not everybody is in an institution that has a lot of resources. So, you know, you can take advantage of online communities. So Twitter was a really important tool for me to connect with other science communicators and, and to really figure out what was going on in, in, in the science communication space. So, you know, social media platforms can be really helpful in finding people and finding opportunities. The other thing is, you know, volunteering. Like, volunteering was critical for me. Um, so find volunteering opportunities where you can explore what it means to do science communication, where you can develop your skills, when you can gain relevant experience, but be strategic about it. You know, there sometimes... It can feel like it's hard to find these opportunities, but then once you find them, you're like, oh my God, there's so much mm -hmm. that I could be doing. And obviously you can't do everything. So, you know, take some time to think about what are your goals? You know, do you want to just develop your science communication skills, but you want to, you're not necessarily interested in a science communication career. So what goals do you have in terms of, developing your science communication skills and find opportunities that are going to allow you to do that. But again, in, in a way that's strategic that you're, you're going to get the most bang for your buck, you're going to get a good return on, on your investment of energy and time. And if you want to have a career in science communication, one, you can do kind of a, a, a thought experiment of well, what would be the dream job? Like, find a job description of something that, you know, somebody's already doing that you think you would like and do informational interviews, talk to people, you know, how did you get there? How did you become competitive for, for that position? Um, and, and think about where you are and where you want to be and what steps you need to take to get there um, to ensure that you're competitive to, to have that career um, or that job that you want. I think that's plenty. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, thank you, Monica, for yeah, taking time thank to you. talk to fun. me. This was great. Yeah. All right, Dan, that was my interview with Monica. Loved it. That was really fascinating. And uh, well, what what struck you, though, Josh? What was uh, the, the takeaway for you? Yeah, so a couple things that, that really stood out to me. And one was, you know, I work a lot, Dan, even in my in my real job. You do work a lot, Josh. Good <laughs> job. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we talk a lot about the importance of graduate students in PhD programs, also making time to get professional development, to to analyze career options, and to really gain a lot of experiences, maybe outside the lab, that could be helpful for them getting the, the career that they want. I think I see where you're going. That could be a pitfall, right? You could spend so much time outside the lab that you just never finish. Yeah. And I thought that was something that was really interesting that Monica talked about. She realized she got to a point where she was losing focus on, on her research project that she needed to do to actually get her PhD. And it, and it kind of led to this crossroads where her committee even asked her, not necessarily even in a in a confrontational way, but just asked her very practically, are you sure you want to do this? Do you want to quit? Yeah, that made my my heart hurt a little bit because I could, I could see that scene, right? You could see the committee sitting there on one side of the table and her sitting there and them saying, are you sure about this? And her saying, 
yeah, I thought I was sure, but if you're saying I'm not sure, yeah, maybe I'm not. It's just it's gripping. And then and then the way she processed through that with a mentor and with um, trying to understand what her career goals were and that it was really important for her to get the PhD. I thought that was a great, uh, very relatable story. And I appreciated her sharing that piece of it with us because that had to be really painful. Oh, absolutely. And and I did love that, you know, eventual resolution where she, she talked to the mentor who gave her a little bit of the perspective to say, you know what, you have these things that you love and that's great. The science writing, the science communication, but finishing this PhD is going to allow you, you're going to be able to leverage this degree uh, and have a much bigger impact doing the things you love in just a few short years once you finish, uh, finish this degree, much more so possibly than if, you, than if you stop now. And she had to pull back. She had to sacrifice a little bit. You know, it's hard not to eat dessert and to finish dinner and finish the vegetables, but that's what she did. And now it sounds like her life is all dessert. Yeah, there you go. So I thought that was kind of good advice. And again, it goes to the thing we say all the time, the temporal nature of graduate school. Uh, but at the it same is impermanent. Time, it is impermanent, thank God. But we also, we can't go too far that we overlook, you know, the reason, that, the, thing we, the things we really have to do to get done. Uh, so I thought that was good. The other thing I thought was interesting was how she graduates and she moves to a new place wanting to do science outreach, do communication, but she's in Seattle, a brand new city she's never been to. And she talked about the importance of leveraging her network and using her network, people she knew, to help her make connections to to eventually land the job that that became her dream job. She said something really important there that I don't want people to miss. She emailed her network or communicated with her network and said, this is what I want to do and here is where I'm going to do it. So having that specificity is so critical. If you say, I'm going to Seattle, does anybody know anybody? You will get no response whatsoever. If you say, I'm going to Seattle and I'm really interested in science communication, particularly with this kind of you know, group of people, and do you know any scientists in that area? You're going to get feedback that is actually useful. Nobody can tell you what you want to do with your life. And so she did that work beforehand and got a really great response. Yeah, and I think that underscores the importance during graduate school of not just staying in your lab, but putting yourself out there, meeting people, because you really you really never know which people, which relationships are going to be important to you down the road. So, um, sort of, she said the word networking. I didn't say it. <laughs> I always like to not say networking and just say getting to know people. Yeah, it's scary. the The word is scary, but it represents a concept. And you don't have to use the word networking, but it represents a concept that's really valuable. Yeah, and it and it really helped her, you know, grab her dream job. And and what I thought was also cool was, you know, we had the little conversation about if you go into careers outside of bench research, the currency is different. It's not just publications. And she shared that she actually didn't have any publications during graduate school um, at all. She uh, seems fine. She and now she has her dream job. Of course, knowing a little bit about Monica. Uh, I then asked her, well, how many non-research publications did you have? And she had like 40. Yeah. <laughs> so It's not that she wasn't busy. It's right. just they didn't happen to be in academic journals. Absolutely. So, so anyway, I really enjoyed talking to Monica. She's doing some really great work. I would um, encourage folks to check out some of the programs she is involved with, uh, Ciencia Puerto Rico. Um, that work is 
become even more important and more critical given the the hurricanes, the natural disasters that Puerto Rico has faced. No, that's great. And and the iBiology, it sounds really fascinating to me to be able to access up to the minute scientific talks, what people are actually working on today and presenting on today. That sounds like a great resource. We will post links to all of these things in the show notes, uh, hellophd.com. All right, Dan, do you have a word puzzle for us this week? The clue uh, in our live show, Josh, was this North American bird can mimic the many tongues of other species in order to attract a mate. I think you have a guess. I do, but you always do this Latin name thing. And so I think the common... Or Greek. (laughs) So I branch out occasionally. It's all Greek to me. Uh, I believe the common name is the mockingbird. You are absolutely correct. Uh, The answer I was looking for is the northern mockingbird. Uh, which is actually the state bird of Tennessee, which is how I happened upon it while we were there in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. The scientific name is Mimus polyglottos. So Mimus is actually Latin, as as you suggested, uh, for mimic. Mimus is mimic. And polyglottos is, sounds a lot like polyglot, and that comes from ancient Greek, which means uh, polos, many, and glossa, tongue. So many tongue. The clue mimic the many tongues was Mimus polyglottos. Those birds are pretty intense, by the way. They're amazing, and they do really well in urban and suburban environments. You've probably seen them. they got kind of stripes on their wings, and they sit on uh, signposts and things like that. Oh, yeah, and I have seen them attacking much larger birds and cats. <laughs> and cats? Oh, yes. For eating or just for keeping away just from their Just for keeping okay. away from their nest, yeah. 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 They're, uh, They're fearless. Yeah. So uh, ornithologists believe that the song repertoire is an aspect of sexual selection and mating behavior. So a single mockingbird can use uh, up to or over 200 different songs, which I think is pretty fascinating to learn the songs of uh, these other birds. And if you are feeling really bold, Josh, we could play some of the songs on the podcast. Neat. Neat. Who let that mockingbird in the studio? It's the power of radio. Uh, our winner this time was Francis from uh, Vanderbilt. So we, we got lots of responses from Vanderbilt because we happened to be there and Francis was the winner and actually knew that it was the State Bird of Tennessee, which I thought was impressive. Nice. Congratulations, Francis. Are you ready for next week's clue, Josh? I'm ready, Dan. This noble gas remained hidden until a Scottish chemist evaporated nearly all the components of liquid air in 1898. Read it one more time. This noble gas remained hidden until a Scottish chemist evaporated nearly all the components of liquid air in 1898. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan, it's been a great show. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcasts at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at HelloPhD or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, HelloPhD.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or you can visit Patreon.com slash HelloPhD. We would appreciate the beer money. Dan, great to be back in the studio with you again. It is fun to be back. Spring has sprung. We're making plans for the expansion and growth of the Hello PhD podcast. Stay tuned for that information. Yeah, we've got some really fun announcements coming up uh, in a future show. All right, Josh, we'll see you next time. All right, see you then. <laughs>